0: Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Malouf, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well.
1: Again, we'll have Ayas Santachita will be joining us as well. I wanted to share with you the significance of that and why when we came together as a group in this form that that was one of the first things that we got launched was this guest teacher focus with women in the Dharma, particularly the monastics. Because we often lose sight of the monastic part of our lineage. This lineage in particular goes through Ubakin and Goinkaji and Ruth Denison. And this is one of the first real householder traditions, meaning Ubakin in Burma was one of the first monastic teachers who brought the teachings into the world. He had a regular job and worked in government and was really determined to make this accessible out of the monasteries and into householder life. So this is really that first big movement where the teachings became more more accessible to folks outside of monastic settings. And that's what we see in American Buddhism is the big outcropping of that. We don't see that elsewhere. Well, now we do, but before we did not. But that was brought to us by the monastics. And I just wanted to ground us in what the significance of the monastic tradition is to us as meditators at this point in the history of Buddhism. As you might remember, of all the heart-mind qualities that are associated with the foundations of Buddhism, generosity is often cited as the core. Generosity is often cited as the foundation of the Dharma both in the way that it's learned, and the way that it's taught, what happens to us emotionally as we practice it. And I always found that interesting. It's not love or compassion or jhanic states or wisdom even. The foundation of the practice is generosity. That's like the cornerstone of the practice, which to me seems really sweet. Because when I think of, if you're going to build a spiritual practice, what a great place to start. (laughs) If you're going to take that first stone, right, and put it down to build this house of the Dharma, it's like, let's start with generosity. It seems like a great place to start. And it is, that's where we start. If you think about the eightfold path, first fold of the path is wise view, which invites us to consider what happiness is, invites us to consider that there's suffering and that there might be a way out of suffering. And wise view goes right into wise intention. And it's said that once you get into the space of wise view, where you can really say to yourself, I'm really curious if I can be free I'm really curious if there truly is happiness that is lasting and non-harming and joyous and filled with compassion when we can get into that space what's said is that our intentions as human beings start to shift when we can adopt a wise view about suffering and happiness the next state is well what are my intentions if i i really want to be free from suffering and i believe that there is a happiness beyond just material pleasures that i can get in the world well, then what would I do if that was the case? And the Buddhist has has an answer to that or a suggestion, which is three things. Cultivate a heart of compassion, a heart of loving kindness, and a heart of generosity. And that's the first part of the Dharma right there. That that's the first thing we look to see to do is to open our hearts to letting go, which is also translated as generosity, loving kindness, And compassion and again isn't that cool that like it just seems like a great way to start it's like oh there's suffering there's a way out of suffering great what do I do well let's try being compassionate loving and generous (laughs) so there's this natural flowing of the path very quickly into this very positive space this very interpersonally grounding and loving orientation in the Dharma and the letting go part of wise intention is also known as renunciation And the highest renunciation is considered to be generosity, the openness, the giving, the letting go, right? Versus the I, me, mine contraction of the heart. Generosity is this motion outward. When we look at the whole history of the Dharma, even today, but when you look back at the history of the origins of the Dharma, sometimes it's easy to forget that the Buddha had questions that he said were answered in his practice after years of training and years of struggle and nearly dying, so the myth goes. Who knows? But let's just take that to be true for psychologically true purposes in this moment, right? The point is, though, that this being had this sense that I made it, that I broke through to what he was calling awakening. And this awakening was considered the highest aspiration for human beings, this highest potential of the heart and the mind to be awakened and live in the world as an awakened being. So for the Buddha and those, especially in the beginning, following him and practicing the teachings, this opportunity was precious. This was a priceless gift that the Buddha was offering. Awakening. He said he had gone on the journey and figured it out, and now he was offering it as a teaching to folks who were interested and learning the teaching. So he had stepped up after being very skeptical about his ability to teach and saying, okay, I'll teach it even though it's hard, I'm going to teach it to those who will listen and who are interested in practicing. And the Buddha considered the Dharma to be this precious jewel, like literally this precious jewel. And you know from our our refuges, we take refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha as a grounding of our practice and a celebration and an intentional ritual. And it's referred to as the triple gem. And it's referred to as the triple gem because the Dharma was considered to be that precious. So at the time of the Buddha, gems obviously valuable, also valuable today. But there was something else about the, the idea of a gem, that back in the day they would sew gems into pouches and they would wear them for protection or keep them close at hand. So the Dharma was considered to be a gem and the gem was considered to be not only of the highest value but a sense of protection so the dharma was not only valuable but it protects us from suffering right by awakening us to compassion and joy forgiveness generosity and so the when we refer to the buddha dharma sangha as a a gem in the experience of the practitioners that's not a metaphor This is the most valuable thing that a human can... That's the attitude that they had to this practice. It's the most precious thing that we can do in our life is to walk the path and to be mindful and to cultivate compassion. That was it. That was the peak of human experience. And the Sangha was in charge of offering that to people as a gift. And so that was the preciousness that the Buddha had towards the Dharma, was this sense of reverence for a path that ends suffering And offers us true happiness so it was sacred for just that reason and precious for that reason that it was just so valuable invaluable so I wanted to just focus a little bit on this idea of it being invaluable or priceless so throughout the history of the Dharma there are these phrases that you hear where the Buddha talks about the Dharma being priceless you can't put a price on it right it's the highest aspiration and goal for human beings And you can't put a value on it. It's that valuable that no value makes sense. Because of this, the monastic community that was formed to preserve and carry on the Dharma, these teaching communities, these learning communities, where people live together, of course, in community, uh, the rule that they had was that the Dharma could never be offered for a price. You can't charge for the Dharma. Because it was considered disrespectful to the teaching part of the reason it was considered disrespectful to offer a price like i'll give you three chickens for a dharma instruction kind of thing like a direct price uh, was because it's priceless and as soon as you commodify it or charge a certain fee directly for the teachings you've already misunderstood how valuable they you've misunderstood and so you're not actually offering the dharma at that point because you've tried to put a price on something that has no price. So it may seem a little abstract, but for the Buddha, his commitment is that the Dharma, for it to be the Dharma, should always be offered as a gift of generosity. And so the monastic tradition has at its core this idea that the monastics, their job was to make this huge sacrifice, leave the world, and spend your entire life practicing the Dharma, and being able to share it with others. And that's where the monastic community really gets its energy and its legacy, is that the Buddha's idea was that to teach the Dharma meant that you shouldn't be trading it or selling it or doing things like that. Because when you commodify it in that way, then the teacher teaching it might change it a little bit if you're going to give them more for it right or maybe you don't like parts of the dharma but you pay a lot to the teacher so the teacher just changes it a little bit because that's the kind of <laughs> that's the kind of dharma that you like it's kind of like saying you know if the audience is going to pay more and they don't want to talk about this part of the path then we just won't talk about that part of the path and then the money comes in and then we just keep the buddha didn't want that in the teachings because he thought it betrayed the beauty and the gem ness of the teachings, right? The generosity that he saw in the Dharma was that the Dharma should be passed down from teacher to student as a gift, and that we should all participate with that sense of rever- reverence for the teachings. And so, in the Dharma, from its very origins, we have this monastic community that has preserved the Dharma in the spirit of generosity for 3,000 years and is still alive and well the monastic tradition is still alive and can trace its way back to these teachings i wanted to talk just a little bit about generosity in the lives of the monastics and how the buddha saw the monastic community as an embodiment of generosity being the heart of the dharma he felt like the community itself had to be a living breathing Generous energy, and that's what had to be the foundation of the teaching moving forward. So, the monastics are invited, on the one hand, to let go of the material world and to take robes, have the alms bowl. And the idea, one of the ideas behind this, is that the Buddha wanted the monastics to have the least impact on the environment around them, he wanted them to be the least burdensome as a gift to the world. Meaning, when we live a life in the material world, we consume, and then we have needs, and then we have hobbies, and then we have cars and airplanes. Everything starts to build on these needs that we have, and it has an impact on the world around us, right? Our carbon footprint, as we know, has gotten a little out of whack, right? The needs that we have as human beings, or what we think are needs, end up having a negative impact on ourselves, each other, and the planet. So I think the original attitude to having a lesser carbon footprint were the monastics, right? And the idea was that they walk in the world giving as much as they can and taking back as little as possible. Not as some kind of vanity, but as a gift. Like I'm going to be here and offer a teaching and the only thing I need is food, shelter, and the robes. And I'm not going to be a burden on anything else. So I'm going to walk lightly in the world as a gift to the world. So that humbleness was a part of the generosity. That taking of robes and going forth and becoming monastic, that act of renunciation was considered an act of generosity to the world. That I'm going to spend my life just trying to be loving, compassion, equanimous. And I'm going to. that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be that in the world. And that's my gift. So part of the renunciation that we see is kind of awkward sometimes with like the robes and the bowls and like they're not in the world, like that's kind of awkward if you're not living that. That is a symbol of generosity. It's a gift that they're trying to be less burdensome to those around. And so that's part of the the symbol of the monastics is generosity of living. Living simply, living on very little, and taking what is given with an open heart and a sense of gratitude. So they give, they enter this life as an act of generosity. And then the lay folk, the householders, support them by giving them food and making sure their medical is taken care of as a sense of gratitude that they're committing their lives to the teaching and preserving it and passing it on. So there's this interrelationship between householders and monastics that goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha and is still alive and well today Uh, in the West. I mean, all over the world, but we have it here in the West the attitude of generosity was so extreme relative to not being uh, a monastic that in some circles and in the Vinaya, which is the monastic code depending on the lineage, the monastics were not allowed to ask for anything, right? They weren't allowed to ask for anything. So the only thing that they could ask for intentionally was for water or medicine, They could say, Hey, I'm thirsty, or I'm sick and I need help. Beyond that, no other requests. Everything else had to just be given. And they, because to request it is to say, Oh, I need something from the world I'm going to consume. And the idea was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to have the least amount of impact. I mean, that's incredible. We, I, (laughs) how many needs do i need in a day day? oh my goodness i get bummed when a certain when my netflix doesn't work and i'm like god this remote like what the that's that's my you know and like so here they are saying like i'm not going to ask for anything i'm just going to try to be generous that's an intense commitment you know that is to me that's just like kind of mind-blowing right that that's the commitment that they stepped into all of these thousands of years The Buddha said this in this uh, one sutta that I wanted to quote. The sutta is referred to as like the moon, but this is the quote that I thought was important. The Buddha says this about teaching and carrying on the Dharma. He says, One should not teach with the wish to inspire listeners so that they make offerings to oneself. That even when a monastic teaches, it should be for the sake of the Dharma, not for themselves. because that's the energy of the dharma that we want to pass on, right? The sense of generosity, selflessness, to the highest degree possible. So the idealized version of monastics is they're really trying to embody generosity at this Olympic level, (laughs) right? You know, we're talking like, I keep thinking, (laughs) the first thing I thought of was like, you know, NBA basketball players (laughs) or something like, that's probably insulting to monastics but you know they are the top of their game they're like trying to be master the generosity parmi right that's what they're out to do within the whole way that they're living the commitment that they had according to the buddha was that you have to teach the dharma without strings attached it has to be generous of heart without expectation because the moment you put that greed or that self in there then the dharma becomes something other than that generosity And so in order to create that generosity, there was this relationship established between the monastics and the householders. The monastics would offer the teachings and they would go with their alms rounds. And then you could put put food in the bowl for food. And then beyond that, there was nothing else required. And they can't ask for the food. It's like you can put it in or not put it in. Because every day... What happens is the monastics were dependent on the laity. And the reason the Buddha did that is that it bound the Dharma in interpersonal relationships. The monks were dependent on the householders. No food, no life. And they were willing to make the sacrifice and accept whatever. Sometimes they wouldn't get a lot of food. Sometimes they wouldn't get any food. But they had this commitment that if they stuck with the Dharma, the Dharma was their gift, that the householder would be grateful enough to want them to keep doing what they were doing. And so it created this dependence that was intentional with the Buddha, right? The Dharma is offered as a gift of generosity in gratitude. The householders give food, oftentimes thread and cloth for the the robes medicine. Then what happens that's given to the monastic, gratitude arises. So now we have this gratitude brings generosity. Generosity brings gratitude. The heart of the Dharma for thousands of years is that moment of exchange. Someone thinking the Dharma is so precious, they're willing to give up everything to be it, become it, and preserve it, and pass it on. And then students being like, wow, this is so cool. Thank you so much for teaching this. Let me me care for you in that. And that is the heart of the legacy of the Dharma and why we're here in this room. Thousands of years of that relationship and here we are in this room, the beneficiaries of that little relationship of gratitude and generosity. That blows my mind. That that, that that's That's just so amazing to me. This is a quote by Nisabu Bhikkhu. Dana is a living relationship with radical trust in people's goodness. Over millennia, this trust has not been misplaced. The Buddhist monastic sangha is one of humanity's oldest continuous institutions. It's an institution founded on generosity and gratitude and passed down as such over and over and over again. When we talk about sangha, and this is sangha here, right? I always like to remind people that there is historically... Three types of sanghas. There's what we call Parisa Sangha, which is us. Everyone, householders, monks, it's the largest group of sangha. It's everyone who's practicing, no matter who they are, what they identify as in any way, shape, or form. Parisa, this is what we do here. And anyone is welcome in. It's like the sangha is just, that's it, that's the sangha. There's no distinction. Anyone who's practicing believes that they're a Buddhist, not a Buddhist, whatever. Anyone who's practicing the Eightfold Path is part of this family, this big sangha. And then there's what we call a conventional sangha, which is the monastics living in community. And the only folks there, of course, are the monastics. They live in community with each other, bhikkhus, bhikkhunis. And then there's what's called the ideal sangha. The ideal sangha is any person, monastic or householder, who has become enlightened even if it's stream entry, the first level of enlightenment. That's another part of the sangha. And over the history of the monastic lineage, what essentially happens is that people give up the world so that they can focus... <laughs> I was like full-time meditators, right? It's the job. The job of the monastic is to practice the dharma, be the dharma, live the dharma. But there's a reason for that. Because if we don't have folks that have taken part in that highest generosity, which is renunciation in that form, then over time, less and less people are getting awakened. Right? When you have a sangha that supports monastics, you are giving them the strongest possibility and likelihood that they reach the end of the path. And when they reach the end of the path, at that point, you now have another person in the world that is living proof that this is something that works, that this is something that is truly being passed on because what's ultimately being passed on is not just the pathway to the freedom, but the evidence of a living free person who is loving, generous, kind and in the world. So when we serve and be are generous to the monastics, we're helping them get there. We're like, yes, please get to the end, do the work that needs to be done and then give us that with that wisdom of your practice. Right? So there's a self-serving part of this, but it's an act of gift giving and generosity. So the monastic institution is designed to make sure that every generation has people who have an opportunity and are fully supported to reach the goal so that goal continues to enter into the world. That light of love and awakening continues to exist in the world, and we give them the highest possibility of being successful. So it's just like it's a training camp for enlightened beings, right? And we want people to end up in the world With enlightened beings. And then it's not like householders can't be awakened, right? There's a whole history of householders being awakened. But it's much harder when you're paying a mortgage, working nine to five or longer, raising kids, doing all these things. It's much harder to have time to practice. So we want to make sure that there's some people over there who are really willing to give it all up and do that work because then their teachings continue to bring the highest awakening back to us, and we get to experience the benefit of their wisdom. So that's this long-term legacy of the Dharma is this monastic tradition. The Buddha said that one of the highest acts of compassion is teaching the Dharma and being someone who can be in the world. And the monastics, that's what we're supporting, is them being able to really get that wisdom and then be the beneficiaries of that. So I just wanted to share that with you because I have a a pretty uh, good enthusiasm for for the monastics. And I wanted to share one other thing before we move on here. The monastic lineage has all kinds of problems. (laughs) They're just people, right? All kinds of problems in the monasteries, all kinds of stuff that's not good. And so I'm not reifying this and saying that the monastic tradition is some kind of perfection. I'm just trying to instill... The sense of legacy and generosity and gratitude that we are in this room because of it for good or ill that it was handed down in that way and that's why we're sitting here That that's where it came from and it has been preserved for a really long time and there are still monastics who need our support who are there still doing this exactly as as it was done for thousands of years the reason i've had such enthusiasm for supporting the monastics is i think as a community of meditators we should always be reaching out to get that wisdom from them into the room, that we should really have exposure to folks who have practiced renunciation and that high level of gratitude and generosity, right? Because I'm not that person, right? I want to make sure that I get that wisdom coming in from the monastics. And a lot of Western communities don't have any of that monastic... On occasion, maybe a monastic wanders through, but one of the commitments I had in bringing this together is that I want to make sure that we regularly have monastics who will be saying, hey, this is what I'm doing as a renunciate, and we can appreciate the power and the beauty of their teachings. Because when you sit in front of a monastic, over you start to see, like, wow, like, their practice is way <laughs> up here. They speak with this knowledge that's not conceptual. It's like they're living, breathing examples of, of the path. And it doesn't mean all... Monks and nuns are great people. doesn't mean everything that they're teaching is true. Blah, blah, blah. They're human beings. But we give them the benefit of the doubt, and I think it's really important to have that energy coming in to our community. Another aspect of this that I think is super important, and this is for me as a white male, not just white here in the sense I'm really talking about being a male, is that over the course of the history of the Dharma, because we've had systems where males have dominated with significant misogyny, the nuns have gotten a raw deal in the Dharma. The voices of women in the Dharma have been actively suppressed. They have. There's a long history of women not getting the support, not getting the care, and being seen as less than men. And so the Achans get the benefit, and the Bhikkhunis struggle with support. To this day, they struggle with support. Um, And I think it's really helpful that as students in the Dharma that we recognize that women have preserved the dharma alongside men, and that we don't really hear that as much. It's, all, it's usually the achans, and we don't realize that there's this whole legacy of bhikkhuni wisdom that is usually relegated as being subservient to the male monastics. And I think it's important that we support women's voices in the dharma for that reason, because the monastic tradition, I think, is still very important, and the bhikkhunis have less support, which is why What you will see, if we keep coming, you will continue to see bhikkhunis in wise spirit because we will continue to reach out to them and support them in the Dharma. We'll have other folks too, but it is a strong orientation for me that we support the monastics first and that the bhikkhunis get our support because they've had a long history of not having it. And I think it's important that we do our best to rectify that the best we can because for me, in my experience, um, it does matter who... I don't want to go into gender identity and that stuff but, but there's a difference when a bhikkhuni comes up here and then an Achan comes up here there's a different energy and a different voice and i think we need to have multiple voices we can't just say it doesn't matter who sits up there it's you know it does matter it's different people with different orientations and different life experiences and having multiple voices is really important for our our growth in the dharma we don't want it to just be me sitting up here doing it's just my point of view it's like one point of view we have to have other points of view and particularly so that's where we came to have ayadama Deepa. comes out of this energy that i'm trying to bring and all of us here being grateful for those teachings and wanting those folks to be to be in the world so thank you for supporting her and in the future this what i see as a guest teacher program that we're just planting the seeds of to bring in women and other We'll have minority voices as well, but I just wanted to make sure that we got our feet off the ground with supporting women in the Dharma and that these Bhikkhunis know that we will be here for them and will be a a place where they can teach and they can have teaching. So thanks for attending and thanks for listening. If you didn't get to attend, please do. It's a a great Dharma talk. There's a good guided meditation that she does as well. Uh, Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Shall we plop for a minute or two? Let's fall back again into this breathing body. The elegance and simplicity of the present moment as we feel it directly in consciousness. What are you really feeling in this moment? What is actually sensed in awareness? From this state of wakefulness, let us wish ourselves well. May we be free from suffering. May we be free from harm, from worry, concern, discontent. And let us spread that wish out into the dharma hall this evening to our friends in the room to our friends online let us wish them well a gratitude for their presence this co-construction of sangha generosity of being being together let's allow the wish for well-being to spread out into the world in all directions let us wish our planet well let the earth be free from harm that it may be loved and cared for And let's end this evening being awake and aware to this breathing body attuned to the heart of generosity and kindness and let's answer this question in this moment if i could wish anything for all beings and know it would come to pass what would that wish be offer that aspiration with each in and out breath Thank you, my friends, for your kind attention. Be safe, be well. Yeah, it's a nice bell. It was an amazing gift from someone in the sangha who wanted to remain anonymous, but they donated the bell for us. Thanks, my friends.
0: Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge, so this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.